Today's episode of Hoops Adjacent is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, for as little as $1. And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing and ready to learn or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood users. Listeners can get started with a free stock by going to hoopsadjacent.robinhood.com. That's hoopsadjacent, all lowercase, .robinhood.com. All investments involve risk. This is not investment advice, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual percentage yield on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is not a bank. Welcome to another edition of Hoops Adjacent. I am David Aldridge in D.C. My man Waz Lambre is out in L.A. Waz, what's cracking? Oh, man, I actually was able to host two events this weekend. Um, It happened to be a holiday weekend, the black man's holiday. That's right, Martin Luther King weekend. (laughs) So, yeah, we did a couple events, one of them being Sunday night because everybody had you know, off on Monday, even though nobody works in L.A. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, both events were successful. We had great turnouts. People enjoyed themselves. So I was happy, man. Um, But yeah, from my understanding, you were able to make it to um, Commissioner David Stern's uh, service out in New York. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, And first and foremost, uh, I, I'm always I'm always amused when people ask me, "Are you going to work on MLK Day?" And I'm like, "Did you read anything he said?" <laughs> I mean, you know, like, what you, why would you ask me that? You know, I mean, <laughs> of course I'm working. Of course I'm working. Yeah, I mean it's just it's amazing that people think, "Well, we're, you know, you're just going to take the day off and just like you know watch BET all day." I guess I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had tweeted that no black man should be expected to work. Right, that's you your choice. Work. That's the whole it's point. It's your choice. That's right. the whole point. <laughs> you yeah. should not be expected to report for duties on MLK Day. I just, I just, to me, that's 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 a, that's a decision. My my body, my choice. All right, 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 right. I got it. That's true. That's true. So, um, so I did work MLK Day, and then on Tuesday I did go up to New York and um, went to the service uh, at Radio City Music Hall for David Stern. Um, and uh, it was it was uh, phenomenal. And, and when I say phenomenal, it wasn't necessarily that the speeches were were great. Some of them were very good. Magic was very. Very good and very emotional um, in, in terms of talking about what Stern meant to him when after the HIV disclosure in 1991 and just standing by him when nobody else would, well, when few people would, I'll put it that way. Um, and then, you know, some other people were, were very good uh, talking about Stern. Riles went on and on and on and on. <laughs> Riles, Riles had... Riles could have used some editing. I just put it that way. Oh, Lord. <laughs> you know, could have used some editing because, uh, you know, but it was, it was well-meaning. But, yeah, he could have said that in about half the time that he said it. Um, but, um, yeah, it was good. They had the whole thing kind of bathed in orange. You know, there's an homage to the ball, I guess. And um, it was really cool. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was sold out. But if you've ever been in Radio City, you know how big that lower bowl yeah. is. It's huge. It, it holds like you know, a couple thousand people just in the lower bowl. Um, and it was pretty much packed. There were a couple of seats here and there that were available in the, toward the back. But for the most part, the whole lower bowl was filled. And um, I didn't even see all the people that, that were reported to be there because you couldn't, I, you couldn't see everybody, you know? Um, so it was, you know, it was, it was a fitting tribute to, uh, to Stern and and everybody had their favorite story about getting yelled at by Stern or, or questioned intensely by Stern about something or other that that uh, was important to him. 
Um, and, you know, Adam Silver said one of Stern's favorite sayings was, you know, micromanaging is underrated. And that really is kind of, that's kind of who he is, who he was, was that his every detail was in, was, was something he was going to be asking about and wondering what they were doing and were they doing it the right way and were they doing it differently this year than they did last year and, and always wanted to, uh, know what they were up to. So <clears throat> it was fitting. But um, it was also, to me, there was a lot of melancholy there because I saw a lot of people that I had not seen for a long time, you know, and, you know, time is the same to all of us or basically, essentially to all of us. I mean, you just notice, you know, you notice yourself getting older every day, but you certainly notice it when you see somebody you haven't seen in 10, 15 years. And um, the melancholy part to me was, was understanding that, there were a lot of people in the, in that building that had given a lot of their life to the NBA, you know, whether it was on the PR side or the management side or the marketing side or the playing side. And I just saw so many retired players that, that came to pay their respects, you know, and I focused in on Buck Williams. I only saw Buck and his wife for a, for a few seconds after the, uh, after the service was over, but you know, Buck Williams, was a hell of a power forward. I mean, he really was. <laughs> he, I don't think, you know, it, it saddens me that, you know, you, people forget so quickly about great players in this league. And and Buck was one of those just rugged, no BS kind of guys that if you came in the paint, you're going to get thumped a little bit. And you had to be able to take that. And um, he gave no quarter and he took none. Um, and it just saddens me because I think of a man like Buck Williams who who grew up, you know, I think he was from, I'm pretty sure he's from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Why I remember that, I don't know. But, you know, since he went to Maryland, I was big into Maryland when they were, when Lefty had it rocking and rolling and Buck was one of their star players. And maybe it was the intros I remember. But, you know, coming from North Carolina, you know, Buck was a, a physical guy. He was not a finesse guy. And it just seems to me that men like Buck Williams, and I knew so many of them covering this league in the 80s and 90s, that did a night's work in the paint and help their teams to victories and help their teams win championships, those men are just kind of forgotten now. They're just not even like, they're not valued. They certainly aren't valued in terms of their front office acumen. They're certainly not part of modern NBA front offices that emphasize, you know, shot charts and the heat, heat checks and all those sorts of things. And, and make it make it plain that nothing but a three-point shot or a layup is a good shot. Um, they're not really valued in, in, on teams and in front offices. I see very few Buck Williams guy, type guys on NBA benches anymore. They used to be kind of a staple of NBA benches as assistant coaches. If you didn't have a big man coach, you had a big man on your bench at least um, that kind of no, you know, made sure that the, the guys weren't messing around. I, I remember fondly being told about the times when DeMarcus Cousins was was just starting out in in Sacramento, and how you know DeMarcus could get away with with bullying people that were smaller than him. And I remember people telling me that one time he tried that with Truck Robinson, who was an assistant coach at the time. And Truck said, "Hey, we can take this outside anytime go. you want, young fella." <laughs> you know, and you know, and Demarcus didn't want that smoke. You know what I'm saying? So, um, and I just think that's um, that's needed, and it's something that's missing from the game today. Not just the physicality and the physical toughness, but just the notion of being professional, learning from pros yourself, and then teaching young players who are coming up, you know, this is how you carry yourself. This is how you prepare for a game. All of those things that, that made pros real pros and showed up every night and played 78 games a year um, on a regular basis. And those voices and that perspective and that experience does not seem to be as valued as much in today's game. They're the ones that put the blood, sweat, and tears yeah. into making this what it is, right? Like yeah. into into um for Mike Conley to have an opportunity to make thirty five million dollars this year, right? right? Right. Where his his player equivalent in nineteen eighty six couldn't even dream of it, but that yeah. guy had a hand in getting Mike Conley to that point. Um, and I think the same thing should be said of front office positions and coaching positions, like. 
we should be putting those guys in positions to do those jobs well because, you know, like you said, a Buck Williams had a huge hand in making the NBA what it is. Sure, we know it's a star-driven league and all of that, but you need a certain amount of players to fill the roster. And it's not just, you know, the Patrick Ewings of the world, his former teammates who mattered. Um, And I think what you're saying is, that you know, that's a prescient point. Like, those guys should absolutely, and it's one of those words we don't use in sports a lot, right? This concept of deserve. Like, you get what you earn in sports, and, and, and we get that. But, these positions are differently, right? Like we watch the Harvard types and the Ivy League types fail at those positions all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think former players should be given the, the, the opportunity to fail as well. And, that, and, you know, that's why I'm happy that you said that. Well, it just, you know, when I, when I first was covering the league was, I mean, it was, you know, there was a hue and cry, you know, especially among African-American players that, they got very few opportunities to be coaches. And when they did get opportunities to be coaches, it was almost always one of the worst teams in the league. And so they were almost set up to fail, you know, and they certainly, if they failed at that job, if they got fired at that job, they almost never got another chance. Now that's, that's improved somewhat. I'm not sitting here saying it hasn't improved at all. You know, a guy like Doc Rivers does not have to go to a rebuilding team. If he leaves the Clippers, he's going to go, he's going to hold out and wait for another great job because he's earned that right. He's shown what he can do as a coach, but Doc is the, is the exception rather than the rule. And it's and still. And also, Dave, you know, I think something related to that too. I, I take the example of Nate McMillan, mm-hmm. um, who, when it, in his first stop at Portland, those who were analytically inclined were like, yo, he's getting all this credit for forming a great defense when all they did was play really slow. So they kept the points per game down because mm-hmm. they played really slow. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea when he got hired by Indiana that I was like, eh. That's right. not that great of a hire, right? Yeah, yeah. He's proven to be a pretty damn good coach. Sure. He's done a sure. lot with a little over there. And, yeah. I, and, and and Nate McMillan is very instructed because, again, and God only knows what he did to prepare himself for his next opportunity after he left Portland, right? It's not like coaches can't make improvements the same way players do all the time. But, you know, what you just said, I think of Nate McMillan when you say that. Like, there was this yeah. idea that, like, there's nothing groundbreaking or, you know, cerebral about what this guy was doing out there. Um, in Portland, he got credit for good defense for his playing at a slow pace. Well, guess what? Indiana consistently <laughs> is mm-hmm. one of the hardest playing teams in the NBA. They yeah. all, they outperformed their expectations year in and year out since Nate McMillan got hired there. And I think, you know, it's a testament to the to the idea that maybe we should be getting more former players in there, man. I just think that there's, you know, I just think that that, that there's a whole group of people Who's again not just their not just their experience as players, but their worldview, their 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 value as teachers and as motivators and as role models, all of those things are just being kind of cast aside. It's just not something that people value anymore. And it and it troubles me and it saddens me because I learned so much as a young reporter from men like them. I learned so much from Daryl Walker and people like that growing up um, that were were professional basketball players and that um, were really kind of interesting people off the floor. They weren't stars. You know, I certainly enjoyed, loved talking to Magic and Bird and Isaiah and Michael and all those guys. They were all great to deal with in different ways. But I learned so much from the guys that just showed up to work every night and, you know, you know, the Charles Joneses of the world. Nobody remembers who Charles Jones was, but he was a undersized center who played 10 years in this league because he was smart and he was tough and he showed up every day and he kept himself ready to play. And I just, you know, people like that should have a place in this league. And I just feel like increasingly they don't because they don't fit the, you know, don't fit the, the mold of they didn't go to Wharton, you know what I mean? <laughs> or, or, uh, you know, they, they didn't spend 75 hours a week in the, in the video room. You know, I mean, it seems like those are, those are the only paths now to making it in the NBA is you have to be, you know, unusually smart and passionate about basketball. Or you have to be one of these, you know, relentless grinders who, who only, you know, looks at tape after tape after tape after tape to the exclusion of everything else. And those are those are not those are not 
you know, unimportant people to have in your organization. They just shouldn't be the only people you have in your organization. That's all I'm saying. What do people think is the more effective mode of communication to somebody like DeMarcus Cousins? I went to Wharton and this is how you should play analytically (laughs) or... I can whoop your ass, son. Yeah, let's, let's take it outside, Trump. <laughs> I'm just you saying. Know what I'm, saying? I'm, I'm exactly. just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So on that on that cheerful note, we will take a break, and we will return with Terry Jackson, the executive director of the WNBPA, who just uh, finished a landmark collective bargaining agreement with the WNBA that really is going to be a game changer for the players in that league. We'll be right back. Let's bring D.A. into the conversation here. Welcome to Who Comma is. Make America what it all is. I turned it on and I heard Shaq with the barbs and just like the bolster and braggadocio. I was transported right back into it. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I think I rap better than Shaq. With David, David Aldridge. Aldridge. Oh, he's totally playing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Come on. We're friends, aren't we? And then he yeah. cut their lungs out and gave everybody on TV. Michael was not your friend. So the Chicago and Detroit stuff, that was real. That was real. I mean, God forbid we don't have scholarship monies and can't pay for the charters for the water polo <laughs> in Iowa. Hoops Welcome to Hoop Five, four. We have ignition. Stay And joining us, and I'm so happy that she's here, the executive director of the WNBPA. Do I have that right? Or is it BPA? (laughs) You nailed it. I got it. Nailed it. Terry Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm really glad we're having you on because I really wanted to talk to you about this this really kind of groundbreaking uh, collective bargaining agreement that you formed with the WNBA. Well, great. Thank you for for inviting me um, and allowing me into your space to talk about it. You know, I think I've been resisting the word groundbreaking for (laughs) a few days. Um, I'm I'm still processing it all. And um, I recognize, though, why people are, are saying this, because it it is quite big and it is uh, quite a shift from from where we were um, and how we move forward. So I'm going to I'm going to let you use groundbreaking and I'm going to try and, and embrace the word myself. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Well, we can we can discuss kind of the where it lies in, in terms of historical CBAs. But obviously you guys had such a different set of priorities Um even from the last CBA that was negotiated before you took the job. And so I wonder with, with the executive committee and with NECA and all the people that are on the committee, how did you guys kind of boil it down to here are the three or four things we really need to get out of this new agreement? Well, you know what? It, it really did start with this executive committee um, and probably two years ago, um, it was conversations with them really led by Neka Gumake, our president, in which they charged me to um, talk with um, the members of the WNBPA when I did my team visits and I was conducting team meetings, talk to them about the collective bargaining agreement, make sure everybody knew what this 300 page document um, was and what it said, encourage them to read it, walk them through as, as many of the provisions of course, as, as we could, um, and also get a sense from from them, from the members, get a sense from them of what was working and what wasn't working, what they understood and what they didn't quite understand. Um, maybe this was as something as simple as, do we need to write the provisions differently? Or maybe it was something a, a lot deeper and a lot more substantive than that. Um, and, and particularly, you know, I, I, I probably talk about this a lot. This is my starting point, you know, particularly when I was talking to the players who are moms. These are players who who are, you know, are returning back to their teams, perhaps new baby in tow is how I would describe this. And, um, and, and get a sense from them as to, you know, what was working, what wasn't working and, and what, in what ways we could better support them. As we were having these conversations, David, it, it became clear to me that that there were topics that fell in one or two categories. It was either we were talking about um, pay, we were talking about salary and compensation, or we were talking about 
um, what I was, what I was calling the player experience, the kind of everything else. And I remember this one meeting I had in which one of, one of the executive committee members, Lasia Clarendon, she was listening to me describe the kind of everything else that fell into that player experience, um, bucket. And she said, um, Terry, we're talking about the drug policy. We're talking about health experts. We're talking about concussion protocol. She said, that to me sounds more important. It sounds like we need to break this out and put this into another category, another bucket, if you will. Um, and I, I looked at her astonished and I, I mean, it was like a light bulb moment. And she says, this is player health and, and, and wellness. This is player health and safety. This is different from the player experience things that you're talking about. And we need to shine a light on that. And that's quite, quite honestly, that's how we got the, the three pillars, the three buckets, um, um, the, those areas that we needed to focus on. And as I was having the conversations across all 12 teams, you know, I, I understood very quickly that what we needed to see in a new collective bargaining agreement was a rehaul on everything. Um, and because we had that framework, we were able to stay focused and stay organized over the, what would be the next, you know, 18, 24 months of, of planning and understanding and, and developing a strategy. I want to read you a quote that uh, the commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, gave. She said, quote, we approach these negotiations with a player first agenda and I am pleased that this agreement guarantees substantial increases in compensation and progressive benefits for the women of the WNBA, end quote. I want to say, I want to tell you why that quote stopped me in my tracks because, you know, rest in peace, David Stern, but this is a opposite posture from him walking into a, a, a room full of players um, on the executive board of the NBA Players Association and telling them, I know where the bodies are buried because I buried them. Like just, just the posture that these people tend to take when it comes to negotiation with labor, it's just not this. Um, and it just, I don't know. It caught me off guard. Uh, do you think this comment was made in good faith? And why do you feel that way outside of the actual results that you guys were able to work for and yield? I do believe the comment was made in good faith. Um, we had the opportunity towards the end of the selection period uh, when the league was looking for a new head of the league. We had the opportunity um, to, to play a part in that. Um, we had reached out and said, this is an important role. We may be labor. We may be on the union side, but this is important to us. And so when you get down to that point where you have that last candidate or candidates, we want to have the opportunity to have a conversation with, with whomever that is. Um, I had that conver I had a conversation with Kathy Engelbert before um, she took the position, before she was announced as as the new and first WNBA commissioner. And it was in that moment, in that very first meeting, um, that we had a meeting of the minds in terms of approach and in terms of what was needed in a new league, um, what was the way to, to move forward. Um, we had a lot of common goals in negotiations. We were we started off kind of talking about the the low hanging fruit is kind of the way I would describe it. it. We started talking about the things that I believed at least that we we had in common. I, the things that I thought we should fix, whether it was um, the hotel rooms or coming up with a body and an opportunity to um, to address long, on, ongoing um, travel concerns that we might have. Um, and, and also be able to talk about the supports for player moms. I thought, I believed that those were the things that we could fix, that we could have a discussion with early, that we could create some momentum on, on our side and on their side. Because if you feel like you have a win in this, um, then that perhaps will propel you forward. I, I also said, I think there were more um, women in the room, women at the table, you know, mm -hmm. certainly my executive committee. Um, we had we had additional advisors, too. And, and, and then on their side, I, I think that helped um, create a more fluid and, and dynamic conversation. Um, so, yes, she came to it with in, in, in good faith with those words. 
and and I think the result with some of the the progressive provisions that that folks are talking about there's evidence to that also. I, I definitely want to talk to you about the travel, uh, Terry, but um, because I just it just drives me nuts that that WNBA players can't fly first class. That just drives me insane. I just I don't I that I I cannot understand that. But the bigger question to Waz's point about Kathy Engelbert with her background coming from where she came from from Deloitte. Um, the change makers piece of this to me is obviously, I believe, as important as anything else, because the change makers and the three companies that were mentioned specifically were AT&T, Deloitte and Nike. That's corporate sponsorship. That's the lifeblood of any sports league um, at any level. Um, and I just wonder the case that you made that doing business with the WNBA players was good business. I wonder what you, what your discussion points were with her and, and the other people that were in the room that this is something that you got, you guys should be doing because it's good business, not because it's altruistic, but because this is something that you need to be thinking about as you talk about the changing landscape of the, the American culture, the, the population and everything else that's going on in real time. Yeah, it, that that wasn't a difficult conversation, quite honestly. I mean, you're you're right. What was happening um, in terms of our culture, what the 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 themes and the things that we were talking about as a culture outside of what it means to be a WNBA player. But a lot of this was rooted in, in a movement that was very much about supporting women, um, shining a light on their issues, understanding the value that they bring to the table in business. And, and again, determining ways in which you could um, identify more resources and, and, and strengthen and their position. And so the fact that the timing was, was perfect, right? Because the fact that we had an opportunity to opt out of that 2014, the last collective bargaining agreement, um, something that our members had never done, that, that, that's not a, a trigger we have ever pulled before for whatever reason, but we had an opportunity and, and we were in an environment and in a culture that was very much about supporting women. And, and we were having these conversations, um, you know, in kind of a larger context, socially and politically, and it really mattered to us. I think there are are many um, on the league and team side that would, and particularly now because we've arrived at a good result for for both sides. But I think even you know all along the way, they would say that you know that the players making that decision to to opt out. Um, you know, made, made, made it, made it almost easy for them. Right. It, it, it made a difference. It made everybody just stop and say, okay, if we're going to have a WNBA, what are we doing? How are we going to do this? What is, what, what is the plan? What is our next move? This wasn't hard. This, this wasn't a hard conversation at all. In fact, it was probably, um, those, these parts of the conversation, um, that made other parts, you know, of the negotiation, um, go pretty smoothly. Um, we got to get our arms around the travel. We got to get our arms around the hotels or or the team housing. Um, we we got to get our arms around so much of this. Let's 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 just go ahead and sit down and roll up our sleeves and figure out how we're going to do it. I'm also looking forward to to the partnerships that we have uh, with One Team Partners, an organization that grew out of our relationship with the NFL Players Association and the marketing and licensing that they have been driving for us. That's going to bring in even more um, sports unions into the fold and, and allow us to kind of build our business. So I, I am hopeful and, and I, I'm a strong believer in what's next for, for the business of the players association, for the business of the union and all for the common good and for the benefit of, of the players in this league. So I'm, I'm very excited. So Terry, I wanted to talk about um, some of the benefits that you guys were able to earn, right? Uh, stuff like maternity leave, a child care stipend, housing assistance, um, you know, other other veteran players will have access to reimbursements for family planning costs and adoption, fertility uh, treatment, egg freezing. Um, you know, for me personally, I, I look at those things as a moral imperative, right? 
um, something akin to basically child labor laws where you don't have seven-year-olds working 12-hour days in a factory, right? To me, that's how I look at those those um, issues. And, and honestly, quite frankly, I think it says a lot about the people who you guys are dealing with, that this is something that you had to negotiate for in 2020 in the richest country in the world. Um, I, I just want to know what you guys' approach were when you talked about putting these things on the table. Was it of a moral imperative? Was it just, you know, this is what competitive businesses do these days? I just want to know what the tact you guys took with those people. Absolutely. Um, my answer is C, all of the above. And, you you know, I, this is my first collective bargaining ag- agreement, um, my, my first opportunity to to negotiate one and, and obviously my first opportunity to negotiate one for for WNBA players. And so I can't really speak to what those conversations and what the negotiations were before. But mm-hmm. I'll tell you, you know, when I when I stepped into this role and I read the collective bargaining agreement before I before I stepped into the role and you know and then once I was here, I would read it and I would think, you know, there's something missing. You know, you you'd read through a provision and you're you're flipping the page and you're saying, well, where's the rest of it? I mean, you you would if you ever read our 2014 agreement, first of all, God bless you. But if you ever <laughs> if you re- ever read our our 20 2014 agreement, you you are left a, a bit with the impression that there's a whole lot missing, and and that it's you know it it, it borrows a lot. It borrows you know perhaps quite liberally from from other collective bargaining agreements, in particular the NBA and BPA of. of you know, of agreements in the past, um, switch the pronouns. And then suddenly, you know, you, you have a, a CBA for, for us. And, and, and really, I, I don't look to disparage the, the good hard work of the, the folks that came before me. Cause I, I understand, you know, the pressures that you're under and you're trying to get it right. And, um, you want to have rules, but you don't want to nail down everything and you, you want to have a good framework. So I get it. I do though, believe that, um, we had an opportunity this time to get it as close to right as possible. You know, in the next agreement, you know, looking back, will we think that we left out some pieces and why didn't we think? Yes, we'll, we'll certainly have those moments. Right. But um, why we had a CBA that seemed to not contemplate players coming back from pregnancy always puzzled me. It was almost as if it was written uh, you know, thinking that, well, towards the end of her career, perhaps, you know, a player will determine, you know, uh, she wants to settle down now. I'm doing the air quotes. You know, she wants to, you know, start a family and and perhaps she'll be, you know, sliding out, transitioning out of the league. Um, that's that's the way it reads to me. It, it doesn't really read as though we contemplated she would come back. And that when she came back, she would need some resources. And, you know, I can remember, um, David, you know, my my husband is a former NBA player and he had a long career. And um, I can remember going to um, San Antonio Spurs games with our little one. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not so little anymore, but (laughs) sometimes he would be in the seats with me, you know, watching his dad play. But you know, at two or three years old, you know, there's only so much of that that he's going to stand, particularly when in, in our family room, there were resources, there were caregivers that were there who, you know, who would watch the children. Yeah. And so it, I just used to have these head scratching moments, you know, fast forward uh, now 15, 17 years. And, and I'm working for a league of, of professional elite athletes who happen to be women. And I don't know that we have in our collective bargaining agreement, you know, those kinds of supports in place for them. And I, and I just would think, wow, 15, 17 years ago, this was a no brainer, you know, option opportunity for the spouses of NBA players. And yet we had nothing in our document, you know, perhaps teams were doing it, perhaps they weren't but I needed something that provided more consistency. I needed something so that if we have a young player in high school or in college who just happens to pick up our CBA one time and is, you know, is thumbing through this or scrolling through it online, I want her to see that this is a career opportunity for her because there are those supports, those make sense supports in place so that she can 
build a career. She can, you know, think about a family and she can have it all. And so, um, it was the moral imperative. It was the sign of a, a progressive, you know, 21st century employer. It was, it was all of that. And Kathy, you know, to, to her credit, she heard the concerns of the players. She understood them. And I believe she also championed these kinds of policies when, when she was at Deloitte. That's how we did it. You mentioned your, your husband, Jaron. I'm, I'm old enough now, Terry, that I covered your husband when he was in college, okay? <laughs> when I was the beat guy at Georgetown. So it's been a minute. Oh, my God. We're all so old. Anyway, I wanted to – I wanted to – there's so much I want to talk to you about, but the travel thing, just it just sticks in my craw. It just sticks in my craw, Terry. You know, I appreciate that, but there's, there's probably – not 12 seats in first class, I know. right? I mean, okay, I-, <laughs> I get that. I understand that. But here's my, this was my argument. And I made this, this uh, suggestion that, that to Kathy, look, they, we saw during the playoffs, they chartered the, the Las Vegas Aces to DC to play in the playoffs, right? And, and I understand that I, that's just not feasible economically. It just seems to me, if you can't fly everybody first class on one plane, you surely can get everybody there on two flights. And so maybe that means you have to think about tweaking the schedule a little bit. Maybe you put in a couple of extra travel days during the year, especially if it's a cross country trip for a team going, a Western Coast team going east or vice versa. I don't know. I, it's just, it's been such. A given, and it was a given in in the mid '90s in the NBA. It's not like this just happened, you know. When the NBA was doing fine, but not nearly as well as it was as it's doing now, that one team just said, "Well, we're going to start chartering," and then everybody said, "Well, then we're going to charter too," um, because of competitive advantage and all that sort of thing. And so the notion of of professional athletes flying coach, it's just it just drives me nuts. I just can't imagine. I just don't understand why this is something the WNBA can't do. Right. And, and, and I'll tell you, so, you know, because people have, have asked me, you know, so where was travel in, in these three pillars, these three buckets, you know, in that, in that framework, it probably started in that player experience category, but it, it soon morphed into the, the health and safety, the wellness area too, because of, of what happened to the aces, right. In, in their travel, um, a couple seasons ago, going, um, from West to East and the delays were just unimaginable. They experienced every kind of delay, um, in trying to go from, from Vegas to DC for, for that game that they, you know, eventually they took a stand and, and made a decision, um, as a team. Um, and I think it was, it was enriched by the conversations that they were having with, with the folks that support them, their, their medical personnel and, and folks like that. Um, and, and they determined that they weren't going to play that game, um, and that there were other ways to, to handle that. You're right. We've we've taken um, a, a step forward in this with the economy and comfort plus. You know, I, I am pleased with that. I don't want to say I'm pleased with that for now, um, as if you know we're we're already looking forward to 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 what could be next in in a next agreement. But you know, let's. I, I do want to see us build this business. I do want to see us, um, you know, have have some active voice on on our player advisory panel um, to bring up issues that that concern travel, um, to talk about ways to be more efficient. The way you're talking, David, and and how we plan and how we schedule. You know, I think the charter flights last year, Kathy, making that decision was a good sign. I think the way we came to the negotiating table, um, being very very reasonable, very very realistic. Um, mindful of the business, you know, further open the door um, for folks to understand that, you know, you know, this was not a let's charter every flight move, but it it was how can we be more efficient? You know, that before I took this job, I was at the NCAA. One thing I could recall, you know, very early on, because I would see the team I, when I got in this job, I would see the team itineraries and I would think to myself, wow, you know, we we have um, a firm that we worked with at the NCAA that was really, really good at moving teams and their fans and, you know, their alumni base and, and the band and the cheerleaders and the dance groups, you know, they could do this. This firm could do this really pretty efficiently um, across the many, many championships 
that the NCAA would would hold and host across the country, give you know, in any given season. And I couldn't help but wonder, you know, what kinds of lessons learned or what additional efficiencies in, in planning travel um, and how to, again, be, be cost effective in how we do it. Um, I, I think there's opportunity there. We'll, we'll continue to have those conversations. I think the league and the, the teams understand where we are, where we're coming from. So I'm hopeful. So, so stay with us, David. Don't, don't give up on us quite yet. Terry, I feel like we buried the lead here in this conversation because, you know, the big headline grab was obviously compensation increase, the maximum allowable compensation increase, as well as the as well as the minimum compensation increases. But I did want to talk about that because, you know, the rookie minimum, it went from forty one thousand nine hundred and sixty five to fifty seven thousand. And the veteran minimum went from 56,000 to 68,000, which is a far cry from, I I think, the 53% increase that went to the maximum allowable salary. I think what fractures unions is the most is this, you know, this sort of idea of haves and have nots. And, you know, I I feel like the middle class and the rank and file members of the union always going to outnumber the stars uh, in any union, right? And the highest earners. What are you guys doing to combat that idea of, you know, fracturing within your group? And, you know, how do you guys think about that going forward? Well, you know, thank you for that question, because um, I think that that's very important um, in, in all of this. So to to have gone, I'll just back up a little bit, to have gone from a salary cap at 996 to a salary cap at 1.3 creates the kinds of increases that we're seeing from the 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 what the top players are making as, as the max players. Um, cause we have two maxes there. And then as you were talking about the, the, um, additional increases that the rookies will feel as well as the, the veterans at, at three or more years of service or, or zero to two years of service. And so what was very, very, very important was that in, in moving to an increased cap, first of all, getting the increased cap and then moving to that, making, ensuring that all boats rise, right? Ensuring that all players from the, the rookies to, uh, to the veterans and, and the, perhaps the, the top or more high profile players, all of those players would see an increase. The conversations that the player leadership was having and our, and our player leadership at the executive committee level, as well as at the board of player reps is a very, very diverse group of players. There are, you know, the younger players, the more seasoned players, the players who are perhaps the top earners, the players who, as, as you were talking, are are more of that middle tier, you know, the conversations may surprise you. There, there was an understanding across, across, um, across the leadership, across the membership generally that all boats were going to rise, but they weren't going to rise at the same rate. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yes. That was very powerful. That was a very powerful moment in our conversations to get there and to be honest with that. And for folks to have dialed in and bought into that so early and so strongly was very important because you're right, that could be an issue that could I don't know, fracture that that seems rather extreme, but that could cause a lot of internal debate. Yeah. There was an understanding that we needed to do things differently. There was an understanding that, you know, just setting it up and creating this increase kind of across the board was not truly, as the players were talking about this, this was not in their best interest for a sustainable league, for building something that everybody wanted to be a part of. And everybody could see that if they, if they too worked hard, that they would have a shot at some of these higher salaries as they move through their career. Um, this is a very special group. And I will tell you the engagement um, was, was, was terrific. It was, it was probably like no other point we've, we've seen in, in this organization. So yes, they they thought about that. They talked about that a lot. And this is where they arrived. They arrived at a point in which they were saying, we need to see our structure look a little differently. So that's on salary, right? And we're yep, very yep. mindful. We're very mindful of words, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's on how you plan and, and how you uh, you know understand your, your household obligations and, and your ability to take care of those household obligations on that guaranteed money, you know, on the, on the, the money that's in your, in your salary. That's what I mean by guarantee. The money that you could 
could compete for, the additional monies that you could compete for, whether it's in, in terms of the individual performance bonuses. So now we've got the six women of the year. We've always had that recognition, but now we've got dollars tied to that award. In the past, you could get that recognition, but you got zero dollars. Moving forward, you'll get $5,000. So there's the opportunity to get performance bonuses. There's also the opportunity to compete for the prize pools as the league looks to set up what will be these additional special competitions, the Commissioner's Cup and some other things. And and as teams advance, they have an opportunity to to make a little bit more. And that would be divided equally across the team. There's the team marketing agreement. So now we see the league and the teams um, having an entire intentional marketing strategy and looking to um, engage players through the year and and during the off season, particularly um, to really raise the profile of of the league. Um, And and so there will be dollars attached to that. That's meaningful. But we we recognize that that was kind of the additional, the compensation, that kind of bonus money. Um, And we had that very real and honest conversation with the players, too. I, I think also the other part of that is the off-season employment program. You know, it was always interesting to me that, you know, we've got these corporate partners on the league side uh, or there's this, this um, family of leagues, right, that, you know, there's the NBA, the G League, the 2K League. And I just kept thinking, you know, given the, the timing of our schedule, we've got an off-season that would be perfect for, you know, identifying opportunities with these corporate partners for these college educated women who might be looking for an employment opportunity to keep them here in the States. This is something that we've been talking about for a number of years, a way that our internship program could have been so much more. So the fact that we got there in these conversations with a more robust off-season employment program, I'm really pretty proud of that. I think some of the partnerships that we were driving with Microsoft, with NASA, helped the league see this is possible. This is what they want. And if the Players Association is doing it, we need to get our arms around those opportunities and talk with our partners and create these kind, you know, these additional positions too for for WNBA players because they are worthy and they are deserving. Um, and and this is we're we're talking about real work. And so this just builds further builds their profile for when you know they they hang up their sneakers right and they're looking for what's next after the playing career. So I'm really pretty proud of that too. Well, Terry, I mean, we could, uh, God, we could talk to you for two hours about all this stuff. This is so fascinating to me. Um, But I I, I want to make sure before we wrap up that I I have to ask you as somebody that is involved at at so many different levels, you are the mother of an NBA player. (laughs) So um, you are the wife of a former NBA player. And so you have knowledge about the game um, at a very high level uh, having watched uh, both of them go through their their careers to this point, and so I just wonder for you as a fan, what do you see when you see John Moran out there throwing lobs to your son every night? What what goes through your head about? Wow, this young man could take it somewhere. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about the Grizzlies. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for for recognizing my husband, who I'm so proud of as a world champion, San Antonio Spurs. And, you know, we are so proud um, to to be sitting in the seats and, and watching our son. You know, he he plays to win the game. Mm-hmm. You know, that's he is driven by that. And so we're just so happy to see um you know, what the Grizzlies are bringing to Memphis this season. It's great winning basketball. They had a great uh, winning streak there. You know, we've watched them go from that that grit and grind last season to, I think we're calling it pace and space. I think that's what we're calling it this season. And they are so (laughs) much fun to watch. Our son loves the game. And, you know, we've got a team with Ja, with Brandon, with Jay Crowder, with DeAnthony Melton, with Dylan Brooks. Like, you know, I don't want to leave anybody out. You know, JV, of Mm -hmm. course. Um, We've got a this is a special team. This is a real special team. And I think Memphis, um, the city is enjoying it. Um, I, I certainly, when I get the opportunity to go home, because though I work here in New York, I call Memphis home now. And so when I have that opportunity to go home and, and my husband and I can, can sit in the seats and, and take in the game, you know, I am, um, it's just such a blessing. It is 
fun. It is good, fun basketball. And as you can see, Jaron Jackson Jr. is having fun <laughs> playing basketball. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's great. I'm so happy that Memphis is, is back. You know what I mean? Like, I agree. I think he and Ja complement each other very well. And like again, I can't even leave out anybody else. It's it's that whole team. Mm-hmm. They're special. Yeah. They're real special. Yeah. I definitely have a, a Stockton to Malone vibe when I see those two play with each other. You know, I mean, I feel like, man, they could they could both, you know, take go to take this franchise to uncharted heights. Or maybe even a Duncan and Parker vibe. Yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Our colleague Dave Dufour said he's the best big man prospect since Tim Duncan. He said that. <laughs> he said that yeah. last season. Yeah. So. yeah, no lies told. You can just imagine the conversations in the Jackson 3 household, you know, um, <laughs> talks very fondly of his days playing with the Spurs and, and, and of course, with that special big guy in, in Tim Duncan, of course, David Robinson, too. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, so it, all, all good, all good stuff. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. I, I don't always talk about, you know, the guys. I don't always talk about my my family because I am so fixed and focused on on what we do. Um, but um, but I, you, as you can imagine, you know, some of the players too will will check out a Grizzlies game, some of the WNBA players, and and let me know that how they think you know Jaron Jackson Jr. is mm. doing. It's a little bit of mom pride right there. So thank you for that. As you should be. And and first and foremost, though, you should be, and I'm sure you are, incredibly proud of the work that, that you did uh, in this really landmark CBA. And I really do think this will be kind of the template for CBAs in different ways going forward because it is much more, to me, more holistic and it is about the whole person, uh, much more so than just dollars and cents. And I'm glad to see it. I'm glad that the WNBA recognized the incredible talent and work work ethic that that's in the buildings every night and are doing the best to showcase that in the way that it should have been showcased years ago, frankly. And you had a lot to do with them seeing that and recognizing that and really putting some skin in the game. So Thank you so much for coming on with us, Terry. We hope we can have you on again soon. And Terry, before you um go to echo what David said, I just want people to understand that there's an idea in this country that our corporate overlords just shower their wealth on us and because they love us so much and they want to take care of us. It's nonsense. The only reason these deals got done, the only reason you guys got what you deserve is because you spoke up and you fought for it on your own. They didn't get the, those things didn't exist in the CBA before and they weren't going to exist on their own, but for the work that you guys did. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people in this country no longer have a lot of respect and appreciation for the gains that are accrued by labor and working people and people who stand up and speak up for themselves. So I just want to say that I'm very proud of you guys. And I think what you guys did is a huge accomplishment and you guys should be proud of what you did. So um, thank you for joining us today, Terry. If I can just say on behalf of my executive committee and my leadership, Neka Gumake, Leija Clarendon, Elizabeth Williams, Sue Bird, Elena Deladon, Carolyn Swords, Chanae Agumake, thank you for giving us this opportunity to to tell our story and shine a little light on what these amazing, amazing players fought for. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Terry. Thanks, guys. Number one in your life's blueprint should be a deep belief in your own dignity, your own worth, and your own somebodiness. Don't allow anybody to make you feel that you are nobody. Always feel that you count. Always feel that you have worth. And always feel that your life has ultimate significance. Somehow you must be able to say in your own lives and really believe it, I am black but beautiful. And back at... Adjacent. Uh, I want to wrap this week with 
uh, what we talked about a little bit at the beginning, kind of in jest, but, you know, maybe a little more serious tip to, to close out. And that is MLK Day. And, uh, Waz, I know you wanted to talk about it. I just wanted to say real quick that, you know, I was fortunate enough to spend, I don't know, four or five or maybe even six MLK Days in Memphis uh, when I was with TNT. It was, you know, it was one of the most important games we did all year to go down there and to take part in the celebration of Dr. King's birthday. Um, and uh, it took on, it took on extra resonance for me uh, because the last time I did it, which was 2018, um, it was, they, they were doing it differently because that was the the 50th year since Dr. King had been killed. So they were starting what was going to be two months of programming about Dr. King's life. And so <clears throat> the notion that it was not only a celebration of the beginning of his life, but it was going to be a marking of the end of his life just really was emotional for me being there. And um, that's why MLK Day has always been, you know, so important to me uh, as a young guy growing up. I remember going to rallies before Dr. King's holiday was a holiday when people were advocating it for it to be a holiday and guys and Stevie wonder coming to the, to the rally and and saying, I wrote this song about Dr. King called happy birthday. And, you know, everybody like with tears in their eyes when he was singing it, you know, because they'd never heard anything. And now it's kind of viewed as like the unofficial anthem of, of MLK day. So it's always been a big deal to me was, and I'm sure it is to you as well. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of easy to get cynical about the business that we're in, right? Um, you know, <laughs> it's it, the bottom line is the NBA exists to make money, you know, but every now and again, they do something that can make you proud of your affiliation and your association with the game and the league itself. And I think, you know, the, the emphasis that they put on MLK Day uh, is important because the NBA is viewed um, and perceives itself, quite frankly, as the black league, mm-hmm. <laughs> way more so than the NFL, obviously more so than MLB base, baseball and the NHL. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we get it. The Democrat, the demographics of that is two thirds of the league are black, is black. But so is the NFL. Yeah. But guess what? The NFL, when they want to do Monday Night Football, they go get Hank Williams. <laughs> they go get Kerry Underwood. Right. Ain't no Hank Williams equivalent <laughs> to the NBA and its branding. No. Right? No, it's not. Um, the people that, the, the, like, the ways that the league choose to brand and market itself is like, look, our league is black. Yeah. yeah. That's just that's just what it is. That's what it means to be associated and affiliated with the NBA. You're affiliated with black culture and blackness in a way that no other sport is doing it. Yeah. And so, you know, it's one thing to have J. Cole do the, the all-star game and take it over and, and have NBA rejoins on uh, ABC and TNT be hip hop music yeah. and all yeah. of that. It's one thing to do that. And so, you know, it's cool to do that. And, I, and trust me, as a hip hop acolyte, disciple, believer, whatever you want to call it, I'm proud that they do that. But I think it's, of course, even more important that, you know, basically the most important black man in the history of this country is celebrated and lauded. And, you know, we take time to remember the guy's memory and legacy. The NBA specifically does that. I think that's important and it's something to actually be proud of because, you know, I find that it's fewer and fewer things to be you know, be swelled with pride or find like morally important when, you know, when you talk about dealing with the game, right? Dealing with the league and and the things that we think about on a day to day when it comes to the league. Um, So, you know, I just thought it was important to address that. Yeah, no question. I agree. And um, the great thing about the NBA that I've always felt was, is that, you know, you didn't have to be a certain type of black man to be successful in the league. <laughs> you know, yep. they understood that we come in different shades and we come in different, we come from different places and different life experiences. And so someone like Allen Iverson could have respect for someone like me and someone yep. like me could have respect for someone like Allen Iverson, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. because we, uh, we both understood while we didn't grow up in the same neighborhood and we didn't have the same circumstances, we understood that there's something about, there was something about being a black person 
that you could celebrate in the other black person, <laughs> you know, and you could respect and you could admire and you could say, hey, you know, I'm not going I'm not going to kill this guy and this guy's not going to kill me. We respect each other. We know what side of the street we're on, but I'll give him a dap when I see him and he'll do the same to me. So, <laughs> you know, and that I always I always just I was just always so um pleased with that as somebody, you know, as somebody that could make, make your mark in the game without having played the game. Um, it always made me feel good that the, that this league embraced the differences that we had and understood that we all bring something different to the table. So on that happier note, <laughs> we'll, t- we'll call it a week here uh, and we will get see you next week on Hoops Jason. And if you are uh, a leaving a review type of guy or gal, on Apple Podcasts or any of the other fine uh, distribution sources, do so. And if you don't like what you're hearing, keep it to yourself. Please. See ya. All right, we good? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop.